Well, good morning again. How are we? You excited about tonight? Okay, maybe not. Y'all signed up, we got your money. We don't care if you're excited or not. But we're glad you're coming, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Let's stand together and uh, we are looking at a new series for Christmas called The Power of Christmas and this morning's power is truth. And we're going to look at it from John chapter 18, yes, John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. And I am going to be reading the green, maybe. Ah, see, there it is. This is what it says. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is the truth? Let's pray together. Father, we pause again to give you thanks and praise for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So extravagant, so generous. And as we celebrate this Christmas, may we be reminded that everything that you have made possible and available, Lord, comes to us through the work and ministry of the Spirit. And so we ask today again, give us a voice to speak, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and particularly the power and energy and strength and wisdom to go out into our world, into our homes, and into our neighborhoods, and into our workplaces, and where we go to school, and where we get our services, and every other place that we find ourselves this coming week, that we may live out what it means to be disciples followers of Jesus Christ. And in his name, we ask these mercies. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it seems a bit unusual to begin a series on the power of Christmas from an Easter text. But I'm reminded of something that Lauren Winner once said in Girl Meets God. She said, Christmas time may be the hardest season for churches. We are inured that not only to the Christmas story itself, but also our pastor's annual rants against consumerism. Every creative attempt to make the season meaningful, to steal it back inside the church, away from the shopping malls and the cheesy radio stations, has been tried, and most of those creative attempts have been proved wanting. Perhaps the problem is not that we don't know what the meaning of the holiday of Jesus pushing into the world is. If we did, 
We wouldn't have to worry about consumerism if we knew what the incarnation meant. We'd be so preoccupied with, with awe that we wouldn't eat, notice all the shopping. The calendar tells us that all of this culminates on December 25. But really, the whole season slouches toward Easter. Now, that brings us to our text and to Pilate's question. Now, I count in the text that Pilate asks four questions. But we're really going to focus on two. And the two questions that Pilate asked Jesus twice is, are you a king? And of course, Jesus responds to his questions. Now, the problem is that Jesus did not look or act much like a king. At first glance, there seems to be a credibility gap between the, what Jesus says and how he lived and how he died to say that he is a king. Now, think about it. Think about it. Now, just put yourself in this for a moment. If you and I Excuse me. If you and I had been there when Jesus was born, would we have believed that a tiny baby in a feeding trough for a crib was really a king? If we had been there watching Jesus as a boy playing in the sawdust and the wood shavings of Joseph's carpenter shop, would we have concluded that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And would we or could we conclude or even guessed that with such a humble human being, with such an individual, that this was the everlasting Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hardly the stuff that we would expect for and from a king. But of course, we know much more than Pilate knew, and we know a lot more than the people of Jesus' time knew. We know that beneath the cloak of Jesus' humanity is God's promised ruler. But here, on trial for his life, that's exactly what Jesus says, that he is a king. Now, Pilate certainly did not get The point. But it is not a coincidence that the very words of the Magi's inquiry in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews, were the exact same words that Pilate would place over the head of Jesus on the cross, which read, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, the truth is, that Pilate was most likely mocking Jesus, at the same time agitating the Jewish religious leaders and also taunting the people. But as well, there is a profound declaration of truth in what Pilate wrote. Pilate's words declare precisely who Jesus is, a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, 
And for this purpose, I came into the world. And this is Jesus' answer to Pilate's question. For this purpose, I was born. Now, God in choosing the way he chooses sometimes doesn't work well in conjunction with our human reasoning. For example, God chose Galilee, not Judea. Now, Judea was the center of the land that God had chosen to be the theater of his operations through the centuries. Galilee was a despised region. It was run, overrun by Gentiles. Jews, very few Jews lived there. It was filled with their pagan temples and rituals. And the whole area was held in contempt. Isaiah calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, and for reason. But it was to Galilee that the angel Gabriel was dispatched. Nazareth, not Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the holy city. It is the place where the temple is, according to Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, For the Jews, Jerusalem is the center of the world. It's the center of the universe. Nazareth was a small village in the province of Galilee. Nazareth is situated about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem, halfway between Jerusalem and Phoenicia. It was an overnight stop for Roman soldiers and Greek merchants on the way to somewhere else. And because of that, it had a reputation. And its reputation was that it was one of the most corrupt towns in Galilee. And I don't think I need to say any more about that. Nathaniel sort of sums up Nazareth when he says in John chapter 1, verse 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth. And Philip says, well, come and see. Now, here's my question. If Jesus were born today, now, in 2018, where do you think he would have been born? Now, what? I didn't hear that. Las Vegas. Oh, Lord, help them, Lord. They are such sinners. (laughs) Where do you think he'd have been born? (laughs) Okay, I'm going back to Las Vegas, okay? (laughs) Sudbury might have been. Somebody suggested Newfoundland. (laughs) Be careful. I'm from there. And I should also remind you that all of you that are laughing right now that the wise men came from the east. I'm just saying is all. It's all. But seriously, the angel Gabriel bypassed Judea, Jerusalem, the holy temple in the center of the world and went to Galilee to Nazareth to a humble home of a young provincial, rustic, hillbilly, girl. We could call her a woman, but she was somewhere between a teenager and a young woman. And then there's this, the world. 
that God chose the world. And Jesus says, for this purpose, I have come into the world. Somebody said that Christmas calls us to be true to the incarnational principle, that God is found in the depths of our humanity in which God in Jesus has revealed himself to be present. He is present in this room. He is present in my life. He is present in your circumstances and situations. And Jesus says, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, I did a little homework, and I went to the dictionary, Merriam-Webster, and I looked up the definition of to bear witness. And I found two definitions. The first one is to show that something exists or is true. And the second one is to make a statement saying that one saw or knows something. Now, right away, these definitions are problematic. We hear a lot of discussion these days about the existence or the non-existence of God, that God does not exist. Now, interestingly enough, according to an Angus Reid report done in conjunction with Cardus here in Canada, we may be surprised to find out how things are with Canadians in regard to their belief in God. So they reported, Angus Reid reported, that when asked about how faith operates in their own lives, Canadians tend to break down roughly like this. 20% are atheists. 20% are religiously committed. 30% are privately faithful. And 30% are spiritually uncertain. That was in the National Post on Friday, an article there. Now, it seems that belief in the existence of God is a whole lot stronger than what groups have been trying to get us to believe. But we'll leave that for a moment and we'll move on to our second definition. And our second definition to bear witness means to make a statement saying that one saw or knows something. Now, in our text, Jesus, in Jesus' case, that something is truth. Now, I think we also know that in our culture today that truth is being contested. Truth is under fire. And so we are familiar with Pilate's infamous question, rhetorical or cynical, whatever it may be, what is truth? And the problem is that he walks away without getting an answer. So on the one hand, this is one of those moments in the Bible, for me at least, that I would wish that he would have not walked away and he would have stayed there long enough to get an answer. And if only Jesus would have had the chance to respond to Pilate's question, things would be a whole lot simpler. But neither of those happened. Jesus, Pilate didn't hang around and Jesus didn't get a chance to respond 
So ever since then, we have been sort of struggling with ambiguity about truth. On the other hand, maybe, just maybe, the ambiguity about truth in our text is actually intentional. It's deliberate. That maybe the, uh, the ambiguity about truth in our text is as inspired as other things that are in the Bible. That what's excluded from the Bible sometimes may be just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as things that are included in the Bible. And this might be one of those. Now, I can think of a, 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 some reasons of why this might be, and you can probably think of others. But I think first it makes us think. I think the other thing that it does, it makes us search and to study. And I think the other thing that it does, it makes truth not just an intellectual and academic issue. It makes truth an issue of faith. Now, I think that I don't need to tell anybody in the room either that long before Pilate and long after Pilate, right up to today, we struggle with truth. Truth. Yuval Noah Harari, in his new book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, you probably saw it at chapters, he says this. He's talking about the secularists, and he says, the most important secular commitment is to truth, which is based on observation and evidence rather than on mere faith. The other two um, um, <clears throat> commitments are to uh, compassion and responsibility, but that's not the point. So he's basically saying that secularists are committed to truth, but it is truth that is based on obs observation and evidence, empirical truth. But what Harari misses is something that Pascal said a long time ago, that the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing of. A rationally grounded faith alone, a faith that is only reasoned and intellect in our minds is a contradiction. Harari goes on to make this really great statement. He says this, and he's talking about religious questions, so he's being a bit cynical. He says, questions you cannot answer are usually far better for you than answers that you cannot question. That's a good statement, isn't it? He means it faith-wise, religious-wise, belief-wise. But it's a two-way street, isn't it? Because while he is trying to say that faith answers cannot be questioned, we could also say that about other things like science. Couldn't we? And then there's this. We are told that we are living in a time where truth is relative. That means that what is true for me is not necessarily true for you. You have your truth and I have my truth. And I am reminded every time I hear that foolishness, I am reminded of something that Ravi Zacharias said in an interview. You'll remember in 2008 when we had the financial collapse, right? And they interviewed, somebody interviewed Rabbi Zacharias and asked him this question in the course of the interview. They asked him this, are you surprised that the people responsible for this financial 
downturn and collapse would be this reckless, unethical, and unprincipled. To which he responded. He said, we cannot possibly think that we can take our finest and brightest theological minds and place them in our finest prestigious learning institutions and teach them that there is no standard of truth or morals, that truth is different for different people, that truth is whatever you want it to be, and then be surprised that these bright minds go out into the world and act out and live out what we've taught them. And Ravi Zacharias says, finishes, he says, am I surprised? No. He says, I am not surprised. What I am surprised about is that it's not worse and it didn't happen sooner. Truth being relative belongs to what we know as a, in our time, post-modernity or post-modernism. I'm not going to get into that. But apparently, our salt society and our culture has moved past post-modernity and that we are repeatedly told these days that we are living in a new and even more frightening era, and that is the era of post-truth, and that lies and fiction are all around us that we are living in a era of fake news, of propaganda, and misinformation. And of course, if unless you live under a, a log or in a cave, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the question is, what triggered this post-truth era? And the questions are out there. And the answers are out there. Is it the internet? Is it social media? Is it the rise of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump? We don't know. Nobody knows. But once again, in this frightening era of post-truth, Jesus' words come to us, and he says, for this purpose... I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, no matter what society or culture's take on truth might be, Jesus comes to us all with his immortal, timeless, universal claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except for me. Now, we can blow off these statements by Jesus as my truth, your truth, or as myth and fiction, or as religious claims, or even intolerance. We can take any of these positions, but Jesus' words will not go away. Jesus is God's truth. Now, there's also this. 
To say that Jesus is truth and the only way to God sounds terribly intolerant. To suggest that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, that truth is not a category or a concept but a person, Jesus is the truth, to suggest that as the truth that he is the only way to God, and to suggest that Jesus is not only the only way to God, but that he is the only way that we can be saved sounds intolerant. It's possible for error to tolerate all kinds of other error. But truth must insist on itself. For example... We may not care about truth, and if we don't care about truth, then we can say that 2 times 2 equals 7, 11, or 121. It makes no difference. But if we care about truth, then we must insist that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and nothing more. That is intolerant. It's intolerant to insist on that, but it is truth nevertheless. And the first power of Christmas is truth. Now put your seatbelt on for a moment and hunker down. A lot of people, and I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to be offended by this, a lot of Christian people, And even maybe some Christian people in the room, and even those watching online, we like the idea of God. We like it. We like him. But we do not like the idea of a God who makes demands on our lives. Many people, and Christians included, want faith without submission to religious authority, without religious revelation, without the need to deal with the person of Jesus Christ or be confronted by the person of Jesus Christ. Many want a faith without the mysteries and the complications and the contradictions and the demands of a crucifixion and a resurrection. Many people want a faith that is nonspecific, nondescript, fuzzy. But the Christian faith will give us none of that. The Christian faith is not intended to be motivational. The Christian faith is not designed to just make me into a nice person. The Christian faith is not designed to make me and you happy people. The Christian faith is not designed to give us a God who only helps us out when we're in a jam. The Christian faith is intended to be transformational. And Jesus of Christmas is that transformative power and that transforming agent. And the God and Father of Jesus Christ 
slips away from our compulsive need to control, and he awaits our acceptance and surrender. And when we do accept and surrender, we find ourselves in that unique place where our most profound desire finds its true home. A bunch of years ago, decades ago, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis wrote this, and some of you will recognize it. He says, or said in Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Jesus says, For this reason I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. And this is Jesus' final challenge. Pilate, Christmas, brings us face to face with truth. Christmas brings us face to face with Jesus Christ. Christmas confronts us with what God is intended, the sending of Jesus. Christmas tells us that there is a king to whom all should and shall eventually bow. Christmas tells us that there is truth that all of us should believe. And the challenge is whether or not we will listen to the voice of King Jesus this Christmas. Now this Christmas... Like every other Christmas and everyone coming, there will be many voices clamoring for our attention. Family and gifts and lights and advertisers and screens and friends and credit card statements and diets and workouts and winter getaway packages. But above all, let us not miss the one voice that matters most. The voice of the one born a king. The voice of the one born to bear witness to the truth. The one voice that everyone of the truth 
listens to me. His name is Jesus. And that brings us to the first power of Christmas. Stand with me, would you please? Father, again, in Christ's glorious, beautiful, magnificent name, powerful. As we stand in your presence, because it's in your presence now that we stand right now because you're here and we're here, but more so because you're here. Where we stand, where our feet are positioned, is holy ground. And so is our hearts, and so is our minds, and so is our lives, because we are the dwelling place of God. So, Father, I pray this morning for those in the room, those that are watching online and those that will watch in the archive in a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, that we would hear the voice of your Spirit, And Father, this morning, if there be anybody in the room or online that has not yet said yes to your offer of love and forgiveness that we can live without shame, that we can belong to you, that this moment would be the beginning of the process that over the Christmas season, our eyes will be open and we'll see the truth, Jesus Christ. Father, for us that are Christians, as we enjoy the Christmas season and we understand the difference between the two versions, there's nothing wrong with singing jingle bells and walking in a winter wonderland. There's nothing wrong with that. But we understand that the real message of Christmas is not about the beautiful winters of Canada and the sentimentality of sleigh rides but the coming of truth. Jesus, we ask in your name, Holy Spirit, may Christ be elevated in this season and in our lives, particularly as your people at Glad Tidings Church and all God's people said, amen.